Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in. And if you tuned in last week, well, what can I say? So much has happened. Last week, for those of you who were listening, I was almost apologetic in bringing back onto the agenda Brexit. I kind of said sorry about three times in the podcast because it had become almost submerged for all kinds of complicated reasons. Uh, COVID, the fear of Labour mentioning it, etc, etc. But of course it had never gone away. And since the recording of the last podcast, the government's announced that it's going to break the law in order to continue with its vision of uh, Brexit, or certainly to keep the option open of a certain vision of Brexit in the event of a no deal. And what a sequence. Well, I'll reflect on that briefly in a moment. Uh, But mainly today, we're going to deal with your brilliant deal. Makes it sound like an ordeal. I'm going to address and raise some of the themes you have raised in The questions that you've emailed to me, they've all been fantastic and there have been loads. So I'm going to devote most of the podcast to it. It doesn't mean we're going to enter realms of irrelevance. All the questions are highly topical, indeed urgently so. In fact, there have been so many, I've kind of divided them for this session into three themes. Boris Johnson and Brexit-related matters, Keir Starmer, a lot of questions about Keir Starmer and Labour, the nature of leadership, some really interesting questions about what it is that makes leaders and prime ministers. And if we have time this week, a bit on the Lib Dems, I think they'll come up anyway, because they were referred to once or twice in some of the emails. And then more next week. We'll get through them all in the end. But I'm going to devote quite a chunk of this podcast. And as I say, they're all urgently topical. Before any of that, we don't have any other adverts except for what I'm doing uh, in this podcast. So what I'm doing is this on Friday. I'll be live at the main hall in King's Place uh, and you can get tickets to join me live, socially distanced, etc. at uh, in the main hall at King's Place. And it would just be like old times, you know, ancient history when we gathered together this time very socially distant, to reflect on and try and make sense of the epic dramas that have erupted since we last all gathered together in a hall. But for those of you who can't make the hall, it's also being streamed live. There are tickets for that as well. And that streaming will also be available afterwards. So if you can't make it at 7 live, you can get that ticket and it will let you in to see a recording later on. And that's all on the King's Place website. The next time at the Rope Tackle Arts Centre in Shoreham, I think that's sold out, but there may be a few tickets left, again, socially distanced as we try and make sense of what the hell's going on. And then finally, the following Saturday, I'm going to be 
reopening Greenwich Theatre. First time I've been to Greenwich Theatre. And by then, no doubt, we will be in other wild places as yet wholly unforeseen. So, you know, come to all of them. Come to both. They'll all be very different. And uh, there are tickets for the Greenwich event on their website. That one isn't being streamed, but the King's Place one is. So hopefully, one way or another, uh, I'm going to be seeing you and having a discussion, engaging with you, trying to make sense of it all. God, is it difficult at the moment at these various live events. It's just worth stepping back for a second or two to reflect on what's happened. Indeed, I was discussing this with some senior BBC people at a a dinner uh, the other day when before the whole, you know, you were only allowed to gather in six uh, at a house about how you convey significance how you contextualize without impeding the constraint of impartiality because this really is unprecedented what's happened the government announcing it plans to break its own law and the sequence or its own negotiated international treaty and the sequence is shocking you could be a brexiteer you could be a passionate supporter of this government and i think objectively it's shocking Because if you look back, Boris Johnson hailed the withdrawal agreement that he negotiated as a negotiating triumph, implicitly comparing it to Theresa May's, which he saw as an act of irresponsible weakness. This was machismo working and getting results, a different deal that dropped the backstop and was portrayed as oven-ready in a general election, of which really that was the only message from Boris Johnson and he won and now he is saying that it wasn't oven ready and nor was it a triumph because he's having to prepare at least for the possibility of violation that is quite a sequence and it raises many questions one of them you know no politician could dare say but I'm gonna say it there is a responsibility I think on voters to reflect on that sequence, including those who supported Boris Johnson on the basis of that sequence. And we know what Number 10 wants. They can see the opportunity of framing, you know, the Great Britain alone against Europe, echoes of the 1940s and so on. But that sequence just And I kind of have summarised the events wholly objectively. I mean, that's what happened. Surely, instead of saying, yeah, come on, voters have a responsibility to follow events a bit more closely and recognise that what happened was that, in effect, either they were lied to or Boris Johnson didn't realise what he had signed up to, both implying culpability on an epic scale. But there's something more fundamental than any of that, and that is the Irish question cannot be answered if you go for a hard Brexit. Theresa May tried, you know, put a border down, but in the end, technology would sort out the border and there'll be no need for any physical entity along the hundreds of miles that span the border between North and South. The technology was a fantasy. There isn't technology that works for a border on that scale. And she dealt with that by saying, well, we'll stay in the customs union until technology 
delivers this miraculous solution. That was rejected. Boris Johnson claimed his triumph when it wasn't a triumph. He had merely agreed the terms that the EU had proposed in the first place, which is if you don't want a border within the the entity of Ireland, you have to have one between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Uh, And he accepted that without daring to reflect on its consequences. And now as he reflects on the consequences, he tries to find a way around it by violating the treaty he had hailed as a triumph. And there will be more and more contortions in an attempt to address this. But basically, I remember having a very interesting conversation with a senior German official. And this official said to me, it's quite some time ago, even though the UK was in many respects the most Eurosceptic of the EU countries, it was least suited to leave the European Union because of the Irish question. There was no answer when part of a landmass was leaving the European Union and going with Great Britain on its own, and another part staying in, unless you adopt a kind of Norway solution where you're in the single market and the customs union. A solution, incidentally, which Cameron and others have said they assumed would be the Brexit that took shape. Instead, we're in this mad situation, still wanting to have our cake and eat it, leave everything, no agreement on state aid, no agreement on level playing fields, and yet having uh, a free trade deal, which deals with the Irish question because everything is tariff-free and, you know, one way or another regulations will be uh, uniform and so on. It's a mess. There's a way around the mess, but it needs a more focused approach than anything we've seen so far. And I think the dynamics are complicated. Johnson, in the middle of the night, I'm sure wants a deal. He sits there as Prime Minister presiding over what looks and could well be a second Covid wave. And if you combine that with the calamitous consequences of no deal, you want to sort that deal out. He's bound himself wholly unnecessarily by saying there will be no extension from the end of the year. If there had been an extension, he might have got had time to get the infrastructure in place to make the Northern Ireland situation run more smoothly. But as ever, the British government has been slow in terms of getting preparations ready, slower actually, than the European Union, even though they were happy to have an extension in the talks. The whole thing is crazy. But... That is the more fundamental element to it. Theresa May tried to solve the Irish question with a hard Brexit. She couldn't come up with an answer beyond staying in the customs union. Johnson has tried to do so by either not realising what he had signed up to or not telling the truth about what he had signed up to until he had safely won a big majority at the election. Those who voted for him follow it closely. I don't know what the political implications will be in the short term, although it is quite interesting when you follow a sort of Trump-like approach, a coalition of opposition does emerge that is quite formidable over time. 
they won't be bothered at the moment about Blair and Major joining together to write a scathing article. Uh, in fact, uh, Cummings will be delighted and say, oh, yeah, they're just yeah, they're Remainers. But over time, we'll see what happens in America in November. Very difficult to predict at the moment. But over time, a coalition can build up of law-abiding, more internationally inclined Tories, Labour under a Starmer style of leadership, and so on. And if that happens, the Conservatives are in trouble. Of course, if Trump wins, and certainly if he wins by any decisive amount, they'll feel wholly vindicated in their approach. In a way, it's up to the voters. We always say it's up to the politicians, but voters too need to follow these things before they reach their verdicts on the likes of Johnson. Anyway, that's enough from me. Over to you and the brilliant questions that you've had. And obviously, quite a lot of it is about what I've already discussed, but from different angles. So I'm going to go through them as quickly as possible. I know some of you run to this podcast. I know it gets you going even faster than normal. And I say, you know, 5k at 30 minutes is very respectable. But one of the emails I've had is from someone who listens to this podcast and runs 10k though he did add a lot of it was downhill. Anyway, so I've got to do it within that sort of time. So let's get going. First question from Joanna Lata. This is about, we'll begin with Boris and Brexit. I've been pondering, she, uh, Joanna says, on the long-term implications of Brexit and the lead-up. I wonder if people such as Nigel Farage and their financial backers might find people turning against them in some way when the economic implications of either Brexit with a deal or a no-deal Brexit become apparent. Well, this goes back to what I was just talking about, the, the degree to which there will be a sense of that famous word in British politics, betrayal, when the economic implications become clearer. And as I was saying, I just am not sure of the answer. There should be, because those who voted for Brexit on the grounds that it would provide more money for the NHS, that it would give them back control, and I wholly understand why that phrase had a potency. But if it doesn't lead to that, and leads instead to higher food prices, food shortages, lorry car parks, uh, insanely congested. What would you feel? Um, but I think on the whole, voters never accept that they were wrong. They do sometimes feel betrayed, but that's slightly different. We'll have to wait and see. Oh, yeah, now here's uh, Jeff Strange. He's the one who jogs uh, his 10K listening to this sometimes, which is, you know, the most thrilling thing I've heard almost in my entire life, especially as I jog around Crouch End, but more slowly. Now, he mentions a key issue. He has relatives in Ireland, North and South, and Scotland too, who are alarmed at the way the UK is treating the devolved nations. This is one of the other themes of Brexit at the moment. And he wonders whether this could actually lead one way or another to a united Ireland and obviously an independent Scotland. And I think one of the consequences of what is happening at the moment is precisely that. There's an obvious focus on Scotland, with polls suggesting certainly younger people, as Jeff points out, uh, the majority is quite big now 
amongst under 45s in favour of independent. But the logic of a hard Brexit is a united Ireland. It is one way of answering the Irish question. There will be no need for a border within that landmass if it is a united country in the European Union. And that momentum actually in some ways I think is stronger than the independent Scotland movement, although that too, as one uh, opponent of independence in Scotland senior, said to me, the argument's gone, they've lost it. Now whether they get the referendum is another matter, but I suspect if Sturgeon wins big next year, one way or another they will get that referendum. By the way, great comments in all these emails as well. Richard Pinchbeck asks about uh, if Joe Biden wins the US presidential election in November and the UK government has carried on with its Brexit proposals, thereby damaging the Good Friday Agreement. What then for Brexit? Well, of course, the sequence is fascinating. It's like a thriller and a really dangerous thriller. Obviously, the presidential election is in November. We've already heard from Nancy Pelosi saying that Congress, and they have the right of veto, would veto a trade deal with the US if the government is seen to break the law in relation to the Brexit arrangements and therefore endangers the Good Friday Agreement, the point that Major and Blair were making in their article. So there is no doubt that what the government is doing at the moment in wielding that threat is jeopardising other trade deals too. The likes of Cummings, who is driving most of this, the most powerful advisor ever to have occupied number 10, even Cummings cares about other trade deals for mad reasons. He seems indifferent to one with Europe. But they too have been jeopardised by this latest move. Richard asks a couple of other questions which I'll come to on another occasion because we've got a lot to get to. Julian Hill asks a very interesting question. Ministerial responsibility, is this still a thing? What would a minister have to do to be relieved of their duties these days? I mean, this is becoming very topical. Should, for example, the law ministers have resigned when a government in the House of Commons announce it's it's going to break the law. But I think the problem at the moment anyway with this cabinet is the dynamic is very clear. Johnson won them the majority almost single-handedly by hailing his oven-ready treaty that he now wants to violate. But they are dependent on his patronage and the patronage of Cummings. And while that remains the case. The cabinet goes along meekly uh, with whatever's going on. You could see the very decent, mild-mannered Robert Buckland on Andrew Marr and other shows this weekend struggling with this issue of breaking the law and hinting, and I think genuinely, that he would resign if in the end the government did have to break the law. The way he kind of had a holding statement was to say, look, we haven't got there. It's the government's duty to make sure we don't get there by negotiation. And that just about keeps him on board. But I think that could be a case of um, a potential resignation down the line. But on the whole, this cabinet does not challenge 
and therefore Cummings is allowed to just get away with his agenda and they meekly carry it out. Of course, it's Cummings' agenda which Johnson decides to follow. The cabinet will become more assertive even in this form if Labour move ahead in the opinion polls and Johnson and Cummings are seen not to be geniuses but destructive forces. And that is a dynamic which would be very, very interesting. There are other questions from Julian, but I'm going to leave it there for now. Louise Davis-Jones says... I struggle to understand why Boris Johnson was chosen as leader of the party. I know I know what she means. I, I did a series on prime ministers we never had and looked at the characteristics of those who failed to seize the crown, saw that Johnson had them all and assumed he wouldn't get it, which shows the limits of my prophetic skills. But the reason he did is very interesting and a sign of how things have changed over recent years. It wasn't very long ago, just over a year ago, when the Brexit party topped the poll in that European election last May. And the Tories were slaughtered, and it triggered the end of Theresa May, and they decided only he, and they were right about this, could destroy the Brexit party, Johnson, by a combination of his apparent charm and wit and his determination, in inverted commas, to get Brexit done. Now, it was all, as we have been discussing in this podcast, a con, but it was highly effective at the time and propelled him to power. Brexit has propelled Boris Johnson into number 10. I think in other circumstances, it would not have been him. Graham Gould asks, yeah, this is based partly on my book. Uh, I've got a new paperback out at the moment on Prime Minister's uh, Reflections on Leadership from Wilson to Johnson. It's an updated book from the one a year ago with an additional chapter on Boris Johnson. And he, he says that you suggest that Johnson will soon feel misery. Imagine how he would feel if he recognises Cummings as a liability and Gove is trying to engineer his downfall. Well, he hasn't got to that point yet, but I think he is on the edge of misery. In my book, I argue that one of the striking features and a constant factor is how miserable prime ministers are a lot of the time. They get to the top and they have ached to get there in most cases. And when they get there, they are on one level euphoric. They have done what so few achieve and they assume they are special. And then the constraints of power begin to overwhelm them and the demands of power begin to overwhelm them. And they really don't enjoy themselves very much. They don't want to give up, but they find it a form of hell. It's a very interesting combination. Now, Johnson, last autumn, even though he was leader of a minority government, he had got there. And he was, on one level, enjoying himself. He followed Cummings' instructions. The instructions seemed to deliver in the midst of chaos. And he was enjoying himself. But I think the eruption of COVID, which he knows on one level, he wholly misread and misjudged, combined with finally having to face the logic of a hard Brexit, is uh, overwhelming him. Now, whether Gove is trying to engineer his downfall, no. But clearly, uh, we know that uh, Michael Gove would like to be Prime Minister because he's 
stood for the leadership twice now. He remains quite close to Cummings, by the way. Of course, they, it was their relationship that began the whole thing when uh, Michael Gove was education secretary. And if Johnson were to go, if the misery became overwhelming, it would, of course, be in Cummings' interest. If he wanted to stay, he might become overwhelmed. You never know. Uh, there's no sign so far of failure making him a more humble figure, but you never know. But if he wants to stay on, it would only be via a Gove leadership that that became possible. Stephen Townsley uh, writes something important here about how you weigh up the significance of a majority. The new people in this parliamentary party, he notes, have signed up to Brexit, and uh, therefore, will they be loyal? He notes that they have different priorities in some other areas, the so-called levelling up agenda, and they've also had to explain a summer of U-turns. Is his 80-seat majority enough to keep Johnson secure for four years? Well, that's an interesting question. On one level, it will for sure keep the Conservatives in power for four years. There will not be, barring wholly unforeseen circumstances, an election before they have to call one. Uh, they've got this buttress of a huge majority. Why risk it? Whether Johnson stays on is questionable. He's facing revolts on several fronts. It's very interesting the newly elected MPs from the so-called Red Wall are privately critical on levels of competence. But where you are right is in noting that they were all elected on this hardline Brexit approach. So he has a majority of 80 for a hard Brexit. Whether he has majorities to break the law and to make a Brexit so economically calamitous for parts of the north of England is another issue. But we should never forget when we hear about the possibility of revolts that it will take big, big rebellions to undermine Johnson in the near future. But given the chaos around him and the chaotic nature of his leadership and the epic challenges he faced, I argue in the book, more immense than any of his predecessors in the modern era. Whether he survives is an, another question altogether. Pauline Hill asks an interesting question. We haven't had time even to talk about this yet. She says, we have a family in Melbourne and have visited a number of times. And last time in the run-up to their general election, they always watched uh, excellent political coverage on ABC. And their understanding is that Tony Abbott was regarded by thinking Australians as an embarrassment while PM and a joke since. His appointment here has caused bemusement on their side and irritation. Whose idea was it? Yeah, well, it's a really interesting one. You know, it, what's interesting about the court in number 10, and in this sense, the court is not unusual, is that they really don't know that many people outside the court. I remember when Blair's number 10 had to try and choose a chair for the BBC, they really didn't know that many people, who to turn to, who to ask. And this lot are a very sort of inward-looking group. They were all part of the Vote Leave campaign. They are basically still a campaign. 
And yet they've got to do these trade deals and they need to find like-minded people from anywhere who can help them out. And obviously they thought Abbott was one of those because he was a sort of Brexit supporter and, you know, kind of quite macho and campaigning and all the rest of it. And so in a very limited field, because they don't know many people, he got it. And it was, a, a, again, a, you know, Johnson and others, they're not very good judges of character. Johnson's a loner. It wouldn't have been his decision, I suspect. It would have been a mixture of Cummings and Gove and so on. But Johnson is a loner and is not a good judge of character as a result. Michael Freeman emailed from Japan. And here we're going to move on briefly. I promise you, if you're running briefly, to Keir Starmer. Michael, thanks so much for tuning in uh, from uh, Japan. On Starmer. Given that the Labour shadow cabinet has a number of members who are less than well known to the electorate, how can Starmer energise Labour supporters and the electorate that he needs to win over? Key question. And who are the key allies of Starmer that he can draw on to provide that star quality to energise and inspire? Well, he hasn't actually. I mean, the reality is the shadow cabinet, hardly anyone knows any of them. And the only way they can acquire a higher profile is if it looks as if Labour has a good chance of winning. It's easy to forget that the Labour shadow cabinet after the 1992 election defeat really wasn't well known. Blair and Brown a bit, and that's probably it. But from 95, 96 onwards... There was much greater interest in all of them. What would Robin Cook be like as a foreign secretary? What's Claire Short up to? Would John Prescott be a reliable deputy prime minister? And suddenly, these people who had attracted fairly limited attention got more. So the key to it for Starmer, and he'll have to do it almost single-handedly, is to get into a position where he looks as if he and his party are potential winners at the next election. And that, by the way, is how some of that shadow cabinet will acquire a certain star quality. It's when they seem to have greater significance that the media gives them that kind of quality. While the Tories are ahead in the polls, there will be not much interest beyond Starmer, who is already generating interest. Talking of that, a question from Gareth Curzon. What are the main things Starmer must do to bridge the gap before the next election in terms of policy? I can't help but think the economic message is where most ground is to be made up. If he persuades the government to do a furlough U-turn, that might hope. I also know 2024 is a long way off, it sure is, but could you envisage a lib-lab coalition then? after that election if it's a hung parliament so good questions there are others in the same mold gareth i think that what starmer is trying to do and i think fairly effectively so far is to win a battle about competence it sounds dull it sounds technocratic but it's important especially for labor if you consider the elections that labor have won 
Sadly, it's not uh, victories based on a great romanticized vision of a society more equal or whatever, you know, sort of Ed Miliband would like to have done and so on. It tends to win, in England anyway, there are questions about Labour in Scotland you've asked, but in England it tends to be when Labour can prove that the Conservative alternative is incompetent. That was, in effect, the message in 1997 when Blair won a landslide and when Wilson won in 1964, that the other lot were not up to it any more. Then they can turn to Labour, and that's what he's doing at the moment. But you're absolutely right to suggest, although that would be a precondition to Labour winning an election, proving that the Conservatives, proving to English voters if, to go back to my earlier point, English voters are following what's happening, that this government is incompetent with their money and their health and so on. He, of course, then needs to uh, develop a set of policies that are both credible and linked to the values of his party. And that is an enormous challenge. Leadership isn't easy. You have to do all these things and then, of course, communicate them in a way that goes well beyond his current highly effective questioning style of Johnson. He will need a much wider repertoire of communication skills. In terms of 2024, it's so far off we just don't know, but you're quite right to raise the possibility of a hung parliament. And I think that in a hung parliament, Starmer would be inclined to try and get a coalition together rather than run a minority Labour government, which is so difficult. Every vote, a knife-edge vote, rebellions all over the place. But that would depend on the arithmetic. It would depend on the state of the Liberal Democrats, who would need to be led incredibly skillfully, as Ashdown did post-92 if they're going to be in a position to even have a chance of discussing a coalition with Starmer's Labour. But we're leaping one hell of a lot of barriers. I was going to answer fascinating questions from Andrew Kitchen, Claude Green. Uh, Noah has asked lots of questions. Noah Key, it would take a whole podcast to answer his. Tom Engel, loads of them. Venetia Kane, I know she's going to be watching the live stream. I might answer hers there. Christopher Patrick Hall, uh, oh, piles and piles. But, and Andrew Campbell has got a great one on leadership, going back to Wilson actually, and how he behaved in relation to Vietnam. But I think we've run out of time for this one. You'll have all ran at least 10K. Um, I'm going to return to them all, I promise, in uh, future podcasts. And do keep on bringing in questions because I think you know things are going to change big time in the weeks ahead. I'm going to give you the email address to send your themes, thoughts, questions. Steve Rick 1414 at iCloud.com. I'll do that again. Steve Rick 14 at iCloud.com. And if you're out exercising or doing press ups, I gave that email address at about 35 minutes, 30 seconds in. Thank you so much for listening. Just a quick reminder again hopefully see some of you at King's Place or on the live stream, if not at Shoreham. 
if not those, at Greenwich Theatre Live, and hopefully some of you at all of them. Why not? And this podcast will be back next week. Thanks so much for your brilliant questions. Many more to come, I hope. We should form a rock and roll politics club at some point. But in the meantime, let's keep watching the many twists and turns. Who knows where we'll be when we meet up next. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.